Welcome to episode 10 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Gabby Goldberg. Now, Gabby is an investor at the Churning Group, or TCG, where she invests at an early stage in the intersection of consumer and crypto. In their latest round, TCG raised its $1 billion fund in June of 2021. Now, before joining TCG, Gabby invested in early-stage consumer companies, both at Bessemer Venture Partners and Chapter One. Gabby is also a prolific writer about Web3 and digital culture on Mirror, Medium, and Twitter. Now, I've been super excited to do this one, Gabby, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, Gabby, you got your first job in VC through a tweet. Talk me through this serendipitous story. Yeah, sure. So um, I did not expect to end up in venture. Um, Basically, the story is I was taking time off of school. I was studying computer science and philosophy, and I was taking time off to work at a startup um, and kind of generally just to figure out my life. And so I, I went abroad and I was working at a startup and in my free time, I was meeting a bunch of founders and investors and operators just in the startup ecosystem there. Um, I was using this app called Lunch Club, if you ever used it, where it would basically like pair you up to get lunch with folks in tech in your area. And I met up with someone on Lunch Club who basically said, you know, all the things that it looks like you're doing in your free time, like meeting all these people and writing online and et cetera you know, you would really enjoy venture, you'd basically get paid to do those things. And I was like, I never thought about it that way. (laughs) And so his advice to me was to get on Twitter. And he basically said that if you go on Twitter, um, you basically have direct access to the smartest people in any given vertical and, you know, what they're doing and what they're reading and writing and who they hang out with. And then you can kind of start to get a pretty good 30,000 foot view of like what is going on in the world in that specific ecosystem. So I did that. I made an account in probably February 2020. Um, You can probably see where this is going just due to the timing. But I was following a bunch of people in venture. And basically, like two weeks after that, COVID hit. I lost my job. I got sent out of the country that I was working in. And on my flight home is when I saw this tweet from an investor, JMJ, who runs his own fund called Chapter One. And he was basically saying, you know, the future of work is remote. I want to hire an intern to learn about venture capital and work with me. You don't need to know anything about VC, just you have to like technology. I'm keeping this post up for 24 hours, send me an email. And so for me, it felt like the stars had aligned of like, I just lost my job. Someone had just told me I'd be interested in something like this. And then here I am seeing this so serendipitously right after I'd gotten on Twitter. So I shot him an email, um, was very lucky enough to be able to work with him that summer and kind of fell in love with venture and then the rest is history. I think that's such a wonderful story. I think it really highlights the power of not only Twitter, but social platforms have on your surface area of luck, right, Gabby? And I think, you know, this, can it be controlled? I think absolutely. There's there's definitely a level of luck which we all have an influence over. Do you, do you agree with this, especially more so now moving into this digital age? Absolutely. I mean, I saw a statistic recently and it was something along the lines of, you know, like 60% of Gen Z or something like that value their digital identity more than their physical one. And I first read that and kind of thought it was crazy. And then I started to think about it more and more. And I thought about the time that I spend online and like the jobs that I've gotten online, the friends that I have in my life, I had met online and like so many of my preferences and behaviors have been shaped by algorithms on the internet 
which sounds kind of scary, but um, I think the internet is a really beautiful tool. And I definitely think like our digital identity has become massively important. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's rewind the tape a little bit to September 2021, where you joined TCG. Now, you put up a blog post saying that you've always been deeply curious about the different ways we interact with technology. Where does this passion fundamentally stem from? Yeah, um, I think it probably starts at the very beginning. So um, I actually grew up selectively mute when I was a kid, which basically means I like didn't really say anything besides to my immediate family. And so sort of the collateral of that is I spent a lot of my time online when I was a kid, like we had, you know, the one like computer room in the house, and I spent all of my time just hanging out on the internet. Um, as I got older, that was kind of shaped into me spending time on things like Club Penguin and a lot of time on Minecraft and RuneScape and these sort of digital worlds where you can build sort of like a second life or a sense of a digital self. Um, and they all have their own kind of like micro economies and their own currencies and their own social norms and things like that. And it was super interesting to see the ways that people were interacting in these digital space spaces. Um, and then as I got older and I got to school, I mentioned I studied CS and philosophy. I was studying basically like human computer interaction, social computing. I was working in the virtual reality lab and I felt like so much of my childhood was, you know, so hugely important in what I was doing as a young adult. And then even now, as I, you know, work with Web3, so many of the themes and kind of behaviors that I see on these new digital platforms here fit so much. And so it's kind of been like a common thread throughout my entire life. Wow, that's a really incredible story and definitely something I can vouch for, Gabby, with the upside of being a digital native is you get to meet, you know, so many great, talented people on the internet. And you said there from being afraid of talking to strangers in the initial to now building an audience on Twitter, do you feel that it's a medium that people can actually find a voice that that's almost intermediated by not having a direct conversation through say a face-to-face -face setting but something where you have a little bit more protection behind a behind a computer screen do you do you think that's a force for good gabby um yeah yeah i think so i mean i think it's a tool um and so you can kind of use the tool how you want and i try and be uh i guess like disciplined in in how i use it but i do believe it's given me a massive voice um I think like even more important is just my um, like the opportunity I had to write online and just publish kind of long form thoughts online. And I think that is where I found the most community just kind of as I spent my time on the internet. I agree. I agree. I, I'm also a, a big believer in long form content and it being such a wonderful medium for you to lay out your thought processes and at least for, those around you to get behind or, you know, rebut and challenge some of the, some of the thoughts you, you might have. And I think it's, it's great in that this setting, be it online, the thoughts from so many different people come together in this one place where you can actually find the truths in a much quicker scenario. And I think that's a really, really awesome thing to do. I'd now want to turn the page and you put out last year a tweet saying that web three is what the internet was always designed to be simply put gabby talk me through and also the listeners what's the difference between web two and web three and why does web three excite you so much 
Yeah, sure. So um, I kind of give this internet history a bunch, so you can probably find it on some of my writing online, but I really do think it's important to kind of understand, you know, what gave me conviction in Web3, but also just kind of how to think about it broadly. Like, what's in a name, Web3? You can't really understand it unless you understand Web2 and Web1. Um, And so I'll give some history. Basically, the web was created in 1989, and it had this vision of being an open and decentralized network of information where people were in control and not platforms. So I really try and emphasize that first point of people are in control and not platforms. I think a big misconception of Web3 um, or just crypto broadly is it's new technology, but it's also a new value system, right? Crypto can often feel um, political on both sides, actually. Um, but I like to argue that, yes, obviously it's new technology, but the value system is really exactly the same. So when we think about Web 1, these early days of the Internet, it was all built on these open protocols. So think like HTTP for the web, SMTP for email, these we obviously still use every single day. Um, and with these open protocols, obviously it was highly technical and you couldn't really build on them unless you um, were technical enough to build on them. And so um, for the mass majority of consumers, the Internet was pretty consumed pretty confusing and a pretty poor experience like you can even watch talk shows from like the early 90s people trying to explain the internet and they honestly like can't even explain it so it's no surprise that over the next couple decades consumers migrated from those open services and protocols to more centralized ones so you can think of web 2 as kind of this platform economy google facebook amazon right the ones that we kind of know and use every single day and here we get to a little bit of a trade-off because on the one hand I do think the internet is the best invention of our century. And so we couldn't have given billions of people all across the world access to the internet and all of its technologies, unless we had made that shift to more centralized services. But it's also hard because when you have um, kind of platforms controlling the internet, it becomes a lot more difficult for individuals and groups and businesses to innovate and create things online without concern of, Uh, those platforms kind of taking control of what you've created. And so there's a bunch of examples I could give there. Um, Probably the big one that everyone always cites is the 30% kind of rev share that Apple takes on any apps on the App Store. So let's say you have a creator-focused app on the App Store and you want to give creators another way to monetize. Um, If you're making $100 on this app, Apple's going to take 30 of those. And so maybe if you're a big business, that's just a line on the balance sheet. But if you're a creator struggling to make money online and people have been cre- preaching the creator economy to you for years, like that's actually really tough. Um, there's, there's more examples. Like maybe another one is, I don't know if you remember, probably six or seven months ago now, um, there was a day where all of the Facebook apps shut down. I don't even know why, but it was like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. And for me, when I saw that, it was kind of the first time I realized, like, holy shit, if these big platforms go down tomorrow, the people who, like, run their livelihoods on these platforms, whether it's a creator on Instagram or someone who runs a community or a business on Facebook um, or all of the people who run businesses and manage all of their communications on WhatsApp, like, they actually have nothing. And so these were the things that kind of started to get me thinking about Web3. And so it's kind of the logical next step. Web3 tries to combine the best parts of both Web1 and Web2, the decentralization of Web1 with the really powerful consumer experience of Web2. And so it's a mouthful, but that's how I would explain it. And those are the biggest differences between the three. Yeah, I think 
you know, having that central dependency on one platform is absolutely a real risk. And now, at least layering on that decentralization, I think it, it can be be the hub of a lot of new opportunities. What do you think some of those are currently right now, Gabby, within the crypto sphere and Web3? Yeah, broadly, we think it's consumer. Um, and so maybe if it's helpful, I can give some background on TCG and kind of what we are up to here, because I think it'll explain why I'm sort of like biased towards that answer. Um, and then I'll get into it. So for some background, TCG or the Chernin Group is a multi-stage investment firm dedicated to building consumer businesses. It was founded by Peter Chernin, the former chairman of Fox News, a little bit over a decade ago. Um, and he basically saw the rise of the internet going direct to consumer. So, you know, streaming services like Hulu and Netflix and things like that. And he wanted to be laser focused on investing in digital consumer. So what that looked like was they were early investors in companies like Twitter and Pandora and later on made investments in companies like Barstool Sports, Meat Eater, Food 52, Surfline, Hello Sunshine, etc. Um, and they actually made some crypto investments that did quite well, not because they were trying to be experts in crypto, but just because it fit their consumer thesis. So under their digital collectibles thesis, TCG invested in the seed of OpenSea. They later on invested in Dapper Labs with NBA Top Shot. Um, after that led the Series A of Zed run and then kind of decided a couple of things. Like one, TCG has been built and shaped over the last decade to invest in the future of media. And clearly this is the future of media, Web3. And so how do we set the foundation to uh, kind of invest intelligently there? And then secondly, Crypto founders, interestingly, really have enjoyed working with a consumer fund like TCG because the ideas that are so important to the consumer, messaging, marketing, brand building, even things like optimizing SEO have been obviously overlooked in crypto for so long, but now are hugely, hugely important. And you're seeing that with all of these big funds launching consumer practices, right? And so um, I guess what I can say now is since then, TCG has decided to spend much more time in the space, particularly at the early stages. Um, I would recommend you follow TCG Crypto on Twitter so you can get updates because um, we'll have some important and exciting news sometime soon. But I joined a little bit less than a year ago, primarily to focus exclusively on investing in early stage consumer Web3. So I guess back to your original question, what are some of the greatest opportunities in Web3 right now? We believe the next billion people to enter crypto will be driven by consumer applications and protocols. And so for us, the way that we kind of think about it is what does it mean to be crypto native, right? You talk to a lot of people and they say, oh, yeah, I'm super deep in crypto. But then you kind of ask them a little bit more and all they have is a Coinbase account to um, kind of buy off the exchange. And so clearly they're not really crypto native. We would define crypto native as being on chain, right? So once you make a wallet and you can go on chain, you know, what are the things that you can do? And we try and meet consumers where they're at across kind of every consumer vertical. If you're a gamer, if you like art, if you like music, if you're a creator, um, all of these different verticals. And we try and ideally kind of like make space for them there. Um, there are a couple things like particularly that I think are interesting in consumer. Um, one of them would be like bottoms up brands. So you can think of like Party Dow. Jenkins the Valet from the Board Ape community. You can think of Nouns, which is really big right now, and all of the IP and composability around it. Um, I'm also super excited generally about investment DAOs, which we can get into a little bit later. We hold seats in a couple of them. Um, and also just thinking about, I guess, what you could call like human readable Web3, making Web3 more kind of understandable, 
and accessible to the average consumer. So thinking about things like what would a block explorer like Etherscan look like if it were really built for the consumer? So I'll stop there, but th those are kinds of the types of things that we like to think about. Yeah, that's a really awesome primer, Gabby. And there are many things in what you just said that I want to dive in a little bit further. <clears throat> First off, and specifically relating to TCG, you said there how we can set the theme to invest intelligently. Talk me through TCG's process in finding the most promising companies in the crypto and consumer spheres. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, so much of investing in the early stage is really about kind of existing on the ground level with these teams and trying to understand deeply, like what is, um, is kind of like happening on the ground floor, I guess you could say. And so for us, a lot of our investing thesis is driven by team. Like, is this someone that we would quit our jobs to work for? Like, that's kind of like a razor that I like to use. And then generally like an acid test that we like to use is if this is uniquely enabled by crypto, it's probably interesting. And if it's not uniquely enabled by crypto, it's probably not so interesting. And so it's not foolproof, but that oftentimes helps us of, okay, this project or protocol actually unlocks something that couldn't have been done before. Um, and that gets us excited to lean in. Yeah, I really like that razor, Gabby. You know, am I willing to quit my job to work for this person? I think it's, it really highlights those exceptional founders at an early stage, which is the most important part when when considering to write a check right it's it's the people the fundamental drivers of the vision and execution so i'm i'm, I'm absolutely with you there you also mentioned a little earlier um this this notion of composability right what does composability mean in a crypto setting and why is it important yeah so when you think about like composability and bottoms-up brands it's basically this idea of being able to kind of like build on top of the brand and obviously it's in the word, but like compose things on top of it. And so um, I'm going to try and give a couple like interesting examples. Like I think the nouns, the nouns community is probably a good one to start with. So um, if you're familiar with nouns DAO, they basically put up a noun, this like CCO NFT um, up for sale every single day. And if you buy one, you have to win the bid and then you can be a part of the community um, and you own the rights to the IP and you can kind of do whatever you want with it. Um, and you've started to see a bunch of really cool like offshoots of the nouns community of people building interesting things on top of it, either to make it more innovative or make it more accessible. So you see the little nouns community of like just smaller versions of the nouns being built on top. Um, someone is making these like physical nouns sunglasses within the community um, and everyone is kind of incentivized to you know, build within the community and make the value of the entire thing go up. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. And so um, it's just interesting to see it happen. And I think like the unlock is when you have this mutual or group ownership of a thing, you're really encouraged to um, kind of like channel your energy into making that thing better, right? You're not, in you're not incentivized to just benefit yourself, but you're benefiting the entire, you know, the whole part of it. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think it's you know so important. It's doing it for everyone rather than being you know totally singular minded on on your endeavor and you know unlocking that value for for everyone within the ecosystem. How do you see some of these trends playing out over the next decade, Gabby? Yeah, um, 
it's it's definitely like we're gonna wait and see and I don't think anyone really knows for sure uh, but I think for me like one of my kind of high level predictions is that a lot of it or a lot more than we've seen so far is going to be on mobile so today web3 is largely web native there are almost no widely used mobile native web3 apps and it's pretty interesting because I'm not sure if you've had this experience of you know telling your friends about crypto or they want to um, like check it out and try it out and so much of what you can actually do on chain or just do on these apps, you kind of have to do on desktop. And it's interesting because we take our phones with us everywhere, right? Like our personality and our, ident- our identity is like linked to our phones. Um, and so I'm really excited to see kind of what mobile native Web3 user experience experiences might come about. And a couple of them that I wrote about would be one is geolocated NFTs. So NFTs that are kind of linked to a certain place. Um, and, you know, with that, you could see the birth of new location-based social graphs, almost like Zenly, but for NFTs. And so there are a couple companies working on interesting geolocated NFTs. Um, Superlocal is like a social app based on kind of where you are in, in your town. And you can kind of, I think, earn NFTs for trying new places in your hometown. Um, there's companies called Mirage and Dropverse that are doing more like AR style NFTs. Um, the next thing I, t- I spoke about was augmented reality or AR web three games. Um, there's a company called Jadu, which is super interesting there. Um, and actually just announced a fundraise recently. Um, another one is social web three wallets and just like really highly social mobile wallets. Um, we actually just made an investment in a mobile wallet company that we're really excited about. Um, and it's very kind of like, highly social, highly visual, um, like at least for me now being on the app, it's the only place I go to like look at my NFTs and look at new projects. And so it's been a lot of fun to see that. Um, and then maybe like galleries for your NFTs. So we're investors in this company called Cyber, which allows you to kind of step into these uh, like digital galleries and view your NFTs or view the galleries of other people. Um, obviously the biggest obstacle for Web3 Mobile over the next couple of years will be Google and Apple continuing to rent seek the in-app transactions that happen on mobile platforms. And so I spoke about this at the very beginning. Um, so the landscape is honestly continuing to evolve and we'll see what happens, but there's a broader project called ethos or Ethereum phone, which aims to be the first native mobile operating system for Ethereum. Um, and I think that's going to be massive and I'm, I'm really excited to keep watching that. I guess it all stems around this, idea of a digital identity right i know you mentioned geolocated nfts and these social mobile wallets what does a digital identity mean to you gabby yeah i guess i would say digital identity is just kind of like life online um and it has evolved over time sort of like my thesis on uh how we spend time online is is basically as follows um the first big wave of social apps so like myspace facebook even Instagram was like early enough that I think you could put it in this bucket. They were all about sharing real life experiences online. So with Facebook and MySpace, you were taking your real life friends, like with Facebook, taking your college friends and bringing them online. Instagram, taking real life photos of the things around you and putting them online. Um, And obviously for those use cases, those platforms worked super well and they reached mass scale and we used them every single day. And side effect of that, is because we were using them so much, we started to spend a lot of time online. And we started to have experiences that were uniquely digital. Like we weren't just having physical experiences, right? We weren't just taking photos, but we were taking screenshots. We weren't just following 
Hollywood celebrities on Instagram, but we were following like internet native or TikTok native celebrities. We weren't just buying art, but we were buying NFTs. And so you can see it kind of like bleeds across web two and web three. But essentially we started to have experiences that were natively digital. And I think the next big wave of social, um, and I think some of it will be in web two, but a lot of it will be in web three is better ways to share those digital experiences with others. And so, right, like where are you gonna share not just your art, but where are you gonna share your NFTs? Where are you gonna share the screenshots that you take online? All of these different questions. And so it's super interesting to think about digital identity in that context. Definitely. If you were explaining it to a five-year-old Gabby, this this whole idea of this new buzzword that is that is the metal that is the metaverse and how this all then links into web three of itself, how would you do that? I have no idea. <laughs> but, I love um, I love your honesty. Um yeah, I have no idea. Um I actually don't really know how to explain it myself, but I use this is like the one-liner from Matthew Ball, who writes a bunch of amazing stuff about the metaverse. He actually just published a book that I need to get. Um, but this sure. is his kind of one-liner for it, and it's stuck in my head. So that's what you're going to get. <laughs> but, um, it's a, he says, the metaverse will be an always-on, real-time world where an unlimited number of people can participate at the same time. It will have a fully functioning economy and span the physical and digital worlds. Um, and so from that, you can kind of see how it would be something maybe similar to like a sandbox or a Minecraft or a Decentraland. And there's this, you know, economy, like this microeconomy within it. The interesting thing is expanding the physical and digital worlds. And so perhaps what is there means like you're connecting your wallet with your identity and your assets that you hold um, and you're bringing it into this digital world. Um or maybe it's an AR, or maybe you're bringing your voice into it with spatial audio. So it's so hard to know. Um, at least for me, it feels very far away. I know some people are more bullish probably than I am, um, but I really, it's so hard for me to conceptualize, so I'm not sure. I guess from that question, and I love the uh, love the answer you gave there, why is education about Web3 important? And why is it important that many new, new people actually get onboarded into this ecosystem? Yeah, it, honestly, it's, it's like two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, I think education is massively important and learning about Web3 is incredibly inaccessible right now. It's why I tried to kind of help out by open sourcing my reading list and publishing my job board and like making it easier for people to learn more about what's going on in this space. Um, and there are a bunch of companies that are doing really great jobs at like bringing people into web three and having them like really use these applications and protocols to learn about them. So for example, we're investors in rabbit hole, which is a learn to earn platform that basically teaches you about web three in exchange for native tokens of whatever you're learning about. Um, but on the other side, I think a lot of people will be using crypto in the future and never know that the applications that they're using are on crypto rails. Right. I think at the end of the day, like I'm at a consumer web three fund, but at the end of the day, we're consumer investors. And um, the, the the crypto that's used in these projects is more of just a tool to enable really unique and innovative consumer experiences. And so the analogy that we give there is like, you don't go on Spotify and say, oh, good, like AWS is working today. So <laughs> now I can listen to Spotify, right? Like no one cares about the rails that make Spotify work. They just care that they get to listen to the music that they like. And so 
I would say for a lot of people, they're never going to care and they're never going to know about crypto. And for them, education is less important. It just needs to work. Um, and so it's kind of two sides of the same coin there. Yeah, I love that. We're, we're all for user experience and just wanting it to work instantly um, and no real sort of foresight as to what's what's going on in the in the back end there, Gabby. I'm, I'm at least a total sucker for that. Now, going on to something a little bit deeper, you know, c- community is something both you and I can get behind. Break down for me tokenized communities or DAOs and why they are so valuable for the communities of the future. Yeah, so I am more pedantic on this than others, but I think tokenized communities and DAOs are two very different things. And so I think it's important to kind of decide how you want to define the two. And so I'll start with DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. I think most of the use cases for DAOs don't actually exist yet. We've invested in two DAOs. So we've invested in a gaming guild, uh, Ready Player DAO, and we recently announced our investment in Flamingo DAO, which is kind of like the first and largest and most premier NFT collector DAO. And outside of those two examples, I think there are only a few examples of things that are really uniquely enabled by this new primitive. Like I think we're really early in laying this foundation. Um, and I believe like many of DAO's best use cases don't exist yet. So it's also interesting because on top of this, there's an explosion of DAO tooling startups, um, like almost more DAO tooling startups than there are DAOs. But I think generally our kind of framework for DAOs is they work when they are designed for allocating capital and nothing more. And so uh, Flamingo allocates capital towards NFTs. Ready Player DAO, the gaming guild, allocates capital towards gaming projects. And then you're allowed then you're able to really be kind of like sufficiently decentralized, right? Because you're not really building in-house, you're just investing. Um, And so this is kind of how we think about where DAOs make sense to actually be relatively decentralized and autonomous. Um, It's kind of interesting because I think what often happens in Web3 is people say they want to start a DAO for a certain idea and, and mission, and then they almost end up getting distracted by like, how do I DAO? right? Like what should governance look like? How many people should be in it? How do we submit a proposal? What if someone leaves? Like these are all of these doubts and specific questions that end up distracting from the original mission. And so um, it's exciting to see like tools that help to solve this problem really well. One of them is syndicate for investment DAOs. So if you want to come together and pool capital towards a certain mission, you can use syndicate and not have to think about how do we DAO, but you can just allocate capital towards what you care about. Um, the other thing that I'll say and then I'll move on to tokenized communities, is there are three sort of like operating principles that I think every DAO should have. The first is collective ownership, which is obvious. Um, And the second, I think is actually pretty overlooked, is there should be like a really public and frequently updated knowledge base of what happens in a DAO or community. And so on that front, there's this company Lobby, lobby lobby.so, which is working to kind of create like a decentralized Wikipedia for Web3, which I think is interesting. Um, And the last principle, which I think is a big problem for DAOs, is a better framework on how to enter and exit different communities. So one of like the best and worst things about a tool like Discord is it's really easy to just click from tab to tab and all of a sudden you're in 20 groups before you know it and you're expected to be an active contributor to all of them. So there's this really, really high amount of churn so I think to solve it, there needs to be better and more clear rules and what it looks like for a user to enter a DAO. So that's all on one side. And then I guess I would say tokenized communities are 
any communities or groups that are governed by a token, but don't necessarily have to be decentralized or autonomous. And so there are a bunch that I'm a part of on that front that I really enjoy. I think probably a big one is FWB. And it's very cool to kind of see the collective agency and ownership that members of that community have in making it better when they all have kind of shared upside in the broader thing. So that's kind of how I would describe the differences between the two. Yeah, that's really fascinating there, Gabby, because I know a couple of weeks ago we had Felix Sim, the co-founder of Salad Ventures, and it is essentially capitalizing on the trends in the play-to-earn space um, through guilds, and he's very interested in the future of where that's developing. What's, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's interesting to see. Um, I think it, it we've we've seen kind of like interesting shifts in play to earn over the last couple of months. Um, they've certainly been the newest kind of like gaming business model to take the spotlight um, where essentially, you know, in traditional gaming, users ultimately have no ownership rights over the assets that they use in a game. Um, and within play to earn, users can work within games to earn like in-game assets in the form of NFTs or tokens or otherwise. And as more people play the game, the idea is like the collective value of the thing will increase while benefiting users. And so you end up having like in-game scarcity and digital property rights and like a two-sided marketplace. Um, you have to like be careful about getting it right, I guess is what I would say. And so we've kind of seen with Axie, like, you know, what can happen, what can happen with like an inflationary token and you're not careful about um, kind of like the sinks and just thinking, uh, deeply about the tokenomics there. Um, we have invested in a couple play to earn games. Um, I actually don't think we've announced them yet. So I actually might have to stop there. <laughs> but we've invested in a couple play to earn games from gaming studios that we think are doing really, uh, doing really interesting things in the space and really thinking deeply about um, kind of being careful around those tokenomics. I'm interested to take a bit of a step back and look at the market as a whole and at least how this has had a trickle effect on crypto so far. How are you getting behind these founders who are incredibly passionate about the future? Yeah, I mean, the changing market conditions are certainly, um, what should I say, um, troubling times, I guess. Um, both in crypto and just kind of in broader equities, figuring out like what the venture landscape is going to look like in terms of funding, and then obviously what retail interest in crypto is going to look like. And so Honestly, for us, from a fund perspective, like we raised the fund knowing that this was coming. Um, and then obviously kind of like the Black Swan event of Luna really accelerated it to be almost overnight. I think if there's anything that surprised me, it was just how quickly we entered the bear market. Um, it was like, honestly, a matter of like 12 to 24 hours. But um, for us, like like I said, we, we kind of knew this was coming. We're in a good spot now to be able to just really double down on our existing portfolio companies and really work with them. I mean... The reason that we even started this fund to begin with is we felt that there was a really a real lack of consumer expertise um, in Web3. And we wanted to be there to support founders on that journey. And now we're here and like it's time to actually do the work. And so for us, we're really excited to just double down and get to work with our portcos. But um, obviously, just crazy, crazy times kind of watching how things are going to change over the next couple months. Well, listen, Gabby, what I do want to do is I want to go on to a couple of things that are totally unrelated to crypto investing and consumer. My first question here is, when you think of success, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? 
Ooh. I hate this question because I always give the cop-out answer and I say my mom. <laughs> but it really is her. So my mom immigrated to the U.S. She didn't speak any English. Um, my grandparents, like her parents, had no idea how to kind of like succeed in America as immigrants. Um, and my mom went to like a six-year medical program to become an OBGYN, basically like bypassing undergrad and med school and basically went straight into residency by the time she was like 22 um, and ended up all the while like getting married, having three kids, never took a day off work and is still working to this day and moved us all to California. And I think all in all, just like raised a successful family where I love my parents and I love my two brothers. And I think it's really rare to see a family where we all have so much like mutual respect and love for each other. Um, and my mom is the reason why that happened. And so um, for me, like above all families, the most important thing. And so success for me in my life looks a lot like my mom and, and what she has done for our family. I know it's a cop out answer because everyone says like, don't pick your mom, but I really have to pick her. Well, listen, it sounds like your mom has superpowers. That's absolutely incredible. She does. I, think, she does. I think you gave the perfect example there. Now, my next question and final part of the main body of this podcast is what does your perfect day look like? This is another great question. So I love coffee. I just got a really fancy espresso machine from my family. It's like a housewarming gift for this new apartment I just moved into. And so I think my perfect day is either making a coffee or going to get one. I love like going out and getting coffee. Um, spending some time outside, whether I'm like hiking or running outside or just taking a walk outside. And I would love to spend time reading. I think it's something that I don't prioritize enough in my life, but it really like brings me a lot of joy. And what else is in my perfect day? Spending time with friends and family and ideally no time on the computer, but some good time reading, listening to music, drinking coffee. <laughs> Those are the big ones. <laughs> I think no spending time on the computer is much easier said than done, Gabby, at yes. least at least in at least in my eyes. <laughs> Nonetheless, what we'll do now is we'll head over to some questions off of Twitter. Now, 24 hours before this podcast, I asked the community for questions they want to ask you. So we'll dive right in. Does that sound good? Sure. So Bernardo Faro or Hey Bernie, he asks, how can someone best approach you to pitch an investment opportunity in the creator economy? And what ticket sizes do you typically deploy? Yeah, uh, my DMs are open on Twitter, so you should DM me. And in terms of ticket sizes, we invest basically pre-seed through Series A. So typically checks up to $10 million is where we would deploy. Amazing. And Shomik, Shomik Gosh, our wonderful previous guest he asks what has been the best community building tactics you have seen for web3 companies and how does this change from traditional enterprise communities yeah i think the biggest part of it is kind of like bootstrapping a community through token incentives um recently i've been spending a lot of time just digging into helium especially as kind of just general crypto market crypto prices across the board go down and I'm looking for where it would be an interesting place to get exposure. I think Helium is super interesting. It's basically like a decentralized wireless telecommunications network. And what a lot of people don't know is Helium had been around for a while trying to solve this problem. And in 2017, they almost went bankrupt. And what they decided to do at that time, I think it was like an engineer at the company 
during this all hands meeting basically said, hey, what if we launched a token and incentivize people to kind of set up these validators and be miners on the Helium network and they could earn this native Helium token for doing so. Um, and it worked. And if you look now, I think Helium has, they raised money in, I think, 2019 and they had some like 20 to 30,000 hotspots that were live. You look at it now, the map is insane. Um, 800,000 hotspots, I'm pretty sure, and growing so much every single day of people setting up these hotspots and earning tokens and basically building this wireless network that like people actually use and people actually pay for and it's a real business. And so um, I think that's a really cool way to kind of like bootstrap a community. Um, Helium is a more kind of technical example, but you see it in all over the place where, you know, you give people tokens and now they're incentivized to really become participants in the network. Awesome. Henry asks, what are your thoughts on the adoption of crypto by these major corporations such as Chipotle and Starbucks? Yeah, um, I think generally it's interesting and we'll see how long it lasts. My friend group was actually texting about it yesterday, like all of my crypto friends, and they were like, oh, we should go to Chipotle today. Um, so I think it's like generally a good thing. We'll see. Um how actually sustainable it is. Um, I guess generally I'm like all four companies getting into the space if they are doing it for the right reasons. And so we'll see. Amazing. Now I have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Now, last week we had Shomik on now recently partner at Bold Start Ventures. The question he left is what has been the most challenging aspect of your current job that you didn't expect when you first started? Yeah, I think the challenging thing is the level of open space that we have. So um, I really can't talk too much about it in detail, but essentially, um, like my last job in venture was really just about finding and picking and winning deals. And I'm in a place now where there's a lot of design space and a lot of ways to figure out, you know, what does this look like? What are the types of deals that we like to do? Um, what are the ways that we work with companies and make them love working with us? And how do we make our companies win? Um, and when you're in a bull market and there's a lot of euphoria and there's a lot of stuff to do and look at, um, your days fill up really easily and you kind of know what you have to do and you get to the end of the day and you're super exhausted from everything you did. And the markets are significantly quieter now. And I went into it at first being like, okay, good. This is a perfect time for me to just kind of learn and research and read and get smart on things that I didn't have time to do before. But in practice, it's so different from what I'm used to. And so I think for me, the hardest thing has been structuring my time to be very productive during kind of this part of the cycle and making sure that I'm spending the time wisely when I don't have these like external validators to check off that I'm doing well. For example, like we did a deal or we've like closed a hire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just trying to spend time with myself and with my team and get really smart on thesis areas. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so important to take a step back and really jam in on, look, what is it that I'm interested in now that I have a little bit more breathing room? What can I hone my thoughts on and uh, and take some time out there? So I'm, I'm, I'm all for that, Gabby. Well, listen, we've come to the end now, but it has been an immense pleasure having you on the show. And we've had such a vibrant conversation from you know diving down the rabbit hole of tech consumer crypto 
and I'm really thrilled we got to do it. It was a blast. Thank you so much for having me.